Ukraine is not dead, nor its glory and freedom. Luck will still smile on us, brother Ukrainians. Our enemies will die as the Jew does in the sunshine, and we too, brothers, will live happily in our land. The words of the Ukrainian national anthem are both stirring and tragic at this moment, after the declaration of war on the independent state by its neighbour Russia this week, and the brutal and unprovoked invasion by the Russian military. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and welcome to a special water cooler conversation where we'll assess the adequacy of the response and its global implications with the help of Dave Sharma, Federal Member for Wentworth, former Ambassador to Israel, and an astute observer of strategic affairs. Dave, welcome back to Water Cooler. Thank you, Nick, for having me on. And it is a, indeed a deeply unnerving time around the world, so I'm, I'm happy to be able to discuss it with you. Well, in a, in a very fast-changing situation, we should point out we're recording this on Friday afternoon, Sydney time, uh, about 24 hours after the declaration of war. There are pictures and images coming out of Ukraine, out of Kiev, which are truly horrifying. Dave, we had seen this coming. Nonetheless, was it a bigger and more forceful move by Putin than you expected? I think so, Nick. I think, look, obviously Putin has put in place what he needs in terms of military assets to conduct a full-scale ground invasion of Ukraine. But I think many seasoned analysts expected that he may not, in fact, do that, that he might incur into the eastern provinces of Ukraine, which, um, around Donetsk and the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. And then he would use that as leverage to obtain whatever else he might want. But it's, it's pretty clear from day one, really, of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine that uh, Russian tanks and armour and troops uh, and air support are all heading directly for Kiev, the capital. Uh, and their ambitions seem to be to topple the government and to occupy the country entirely. That seems to be the conclusion right now. Look, he's got form, of course. There was the occupation of uh, South Ossetia, which was a, a country that they basically made up in neighbouring Georgia. There was, of course, the invasion of the Crimea and now this. Uh, have we been perhaps a little bit too complacent about Russians' intentions and perhaps not taking the rhetoric of rebuilding the Russian Empire, of regaining its strength as a superpower, we've not maybe been taking that rhetoric seriously enough? I think there is some truth in that. I mean, uh, Putin published a 5,000-word essay, I think it was in July of last year, July 2021, uh, which, if you reread it now, makes clear that, firstly, he sees the entire possibility of a sovereign and independent Ukraine as, uh, as, as non-existent. He considers Ukraine to be Russian territory uh, and it's also you know, part of Russian civilization and, in fact, an inalienable part of Russia. And I think with that essay, uh, he was obviously revealing his intent, I think, that he, he believes that in some sense either Ukraine should be unified uh, or incorporated into Russia, or at the very least, made to be a subservient and client state, again, as it was during the time of the Soviet Union. We should come on and talk about the implications for the rules-based world order more generally. But uh, first, I mean, I think we have to think about the response, particularly from the United States. We always look to the United States to take a lead in these things. I'm going to see if I can just play you just a very short extract of Joe Biden. This was a Twitter video, I think, that he did, but before the last election where he's trying to put forward his credentials on foreign policy. Let's just see if we can listen to that now. 
because Putin knows if I am president of the United States, his days of tyranny and trying to intimidate the United States and those in Eastern Europe are over. I'm going to stand up to him. He's a bully, just like the president. And I know he doesn't want me to be president, but to tell you what, when I'm president, things are going to change. Yeah, well, it didn't quite work out like that, did it? Just as his promise to end COVID didn't work out. But I mean, this is this is altogether more serious in in, in my mind. Putin seems to have taken absolutely no notice of American rhetoric. The sanctions, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the sanctions, seem to be a at the lower end of the scale of, of the ways in which the United States, uh, you know, at, at taking the lead for the Western community could react. I suppose we could we could sit here all day talking about what if, you know, what if Trump had been elected mm. or what if Mitt Romney had been elected indeed in 2012, but we are where we are. What's your assessment of the response so far from the White House? Well, look, I think the mistake that was made here, Nick, and it was made early on, was to basically to rule out any military options in responding to this. It was always very clear from the... Uh, and this is a collective NATO responsibility here. This is the United States and Europe. They'd always made very clear that they would respond in a punitive way after the fact. Um, and they hoped that that alone, through the threat of sanctions and financial measures and others, would be enough to deter Russian invasion. But they were never prepared to put military assets on the table or the option of using military force. Now, you don't necessarily need to put those options on the table with a view to using them, but displays of strength and displays of resolve can do a huge amount to deter an aggressor. You know, you, you sail an aircraft carrier battle group into the Black Sea, uh, you put in Patriot missile batteries uh, and sophisticated anti-aircraft defences into Ukraine, you beef up the troop presence uh, on the border. These are the sorts of things that I think may have changed Putin's calculus, who knows if they would have done, but because they were discounted and dismissed very early, I think Putin has presumably made the calculation that he can ride out economic sanctions than he has in the past uh, and uh, and he can ride out any um, attempts to freeze Russia out of the you know global markets and, and global capital quite easily, but he and he wasn't going to have to pay a price militarily. And I think that was really uh, to blame for where we are today, that we didn't at least put those options on the table. Yes, it's very easy for me to sit here as an Australian uh, and um, knowing that it's unlikely that Australian troops or personnel or lives are going to be uh, risked in such a conflict. But this is, this is part of the responsibility of being a US power. I mean, why does the US have tens of thousands of troops in South Korea and Japan? Uh, it's because it deters potential aggressors against those countries because it will mean inevitably engagement with the United States military, which still remains overwhelmingly the most powerful military in the world. And, and Putin would also fear a US a conflict with the United States military. They're a more sophisticated, more powerful, more technologically savvy uh, military. And Russia is a, is a significant military power, but not in the same league as the United States. Those sanctions may, may have a little bit more effect than some are saying, I, I don't know, but Russia's appearance of strength does uh, belie some significant weaknesses uh, across its economy, demographics, public health, and so forth. Uh, former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said uh, 
Putin has played a poor hand well, whereas the United States and its allies in Europe have played a much better hand poorly. Of course, that's a comment she made some time before this. But I think it applies, doesn't it? What, what gives Russia its strength? And one part of its strength, obviously, is the fact that it is an energy superpower, if not a world superpower yet. And that's given it a considerable amount of economic leverage over Europe, in particular Germany. Have we, did we make a mistake, number one, in, in, or did the West make a mistake more broadly in getting so quickly out of some traditional fuels, like or nuclear in the case of Germany, and making, laying, making us vulnerable to this supply of energy from Russia? Look, potentially. I mean, Russia supplies about half of, you know, one third of Europe's gas and about half of Germany's, for instance. So that does give them some leverage. You're right to point out or, or that... Russia fundamentally is not a not a strong country. The, the economy is a shade bigger than Australia's. The population is ageing and uh, declining. Uh, but they still have a, a first-grade military and a first-grade um, military capability. And I think that the big difference here is with sanctions, you've got to remember Putin is not subject to the same domestic political pressures as a democratically elected leader would be. If you're a democratically elected leader uh, with a, you know, a, a vibrant civil society, a free press, and a um, political opposition, then you're worried about your reelectability or survival. In if your economy is going to tank, if your population is going to wear hardship, but Putin has over two decades now shut down domestic opposition, imprisoned political opponents, stifled the press, uh, and so he's not subject to those same pressures. And generally speaking, if you look at have sanctions worked in autocratic states in weakening leaders, the empirical evidence is no. North Korea, no. Iran, no. Saddam Hussein's Iraq, no. Generally speaking, or often enough, those leaders are quite clever in blaming the outside world and convincing their publics that the outside world is to blame uh, for this. And it doesn't weaken their their hold on power, and ultimately, this is what these people. This is what motivates or drives these people. They want to be sure that they can hang on to power. And if sanctions are not going to threaten their hold on power, well, you know, how useful are they as at all? Yes, we can, we can, you know, um, weaken the Russian economy, but ultimately, if Putin remains in charge, he, I don't think he cares all that much. His his primary interest isn't in the welfare of his people. It's a, it's a geostrategic or geopolitical and sense of historical mission. Uh, about where he sees Russia's place in the world. Mm. And sanctions often end up hurting the, the poorest people in the country, the ordinary people. I mean, I'm thinking of country, countries like Venezuela, mm. while the leaders go on living their luxury lives. So, yeah, you know, think... the, the, the leaders end up controlling the black market and the unofficial exchange rates and the contracts and all that sort of stuff that comes mm. with sanctions and the sanctions running. The leaders usually end up being the people who are in the best positions to profit from that arbitrage. So to what this what this portends in a broader sense, there can be no doubt, can there now, after China's silence on this invasion, refusal to condemn it along with much of the rest of the world, there can be no doubt that we now face a, a Beijing-Moscow axis of some sort. Look, that is right. I still think it's it's an axis of convenience. I mean, maybe you could argue that all axes, axes are ones of convenience. I mean, China will be obviously an interesting one to watch here, I don't think they would be privately anyway, particularly um, pleased with this because it's disruptive of the global order and they're very protective of state sovereignty and territorial integrity and non-interference. Well, this is the grossest 
level of interference you can possibly contemplate in another state's affairs. So, you know, China does benefit and and prizes those elements of the international order, which Russia is now flouting. So I don't think they're going to break openly with Putin. Um, but I don't necessarily know you'll see, you know, full-throated support. And you may or may not see a level of diplomatic protection as well. We have to, we have to wait and see. But I would say that if you're if you're a thoughtful policymaker inside um, China's Politburo Standing Committee and their, their sort of their, their national security organs, you would be seeing some considerable risks to Chinese interests with what's going on here in in Russia. Um, you know, not, not necessarily that there would be other elements to it as well, giving that they would be cheering on, giving the West a bloody nose, exposing America and uh, NATO as impotent, those sorts of things. Yes, they would see an upside in that. But I think they would also be seeing some potential downsides here. Do you think they're watching this, watching particularly the West reaction to gauge how things might go were they to launch an attack on Taiwan? Absolutely. Absolutely, they're watching that. Uh, and it absolutely will inform their calculus because this is really a test of, resolve. Ukraine, no, it's not a NATO member state, but Europe and America have certainly supported it. And it's uh, uh, if a threat is made to the territorial integrity or political independence of another state in the system, is the West prepared to fight for that? I mean, the last time this happened on this sort of scale, or one of the more recent times, was, of course, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, when a, a sovereign state uh, you know, rolled its tanks and troops across the border of another country, uh, occupied it, um, made some claims about it, so sort of the historic nature of its 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 claims to it, and also said Kuwait was a fictional country, I think, just as Putin is saying Ukraine is as well. And then, of course, the West responded, including Australia, uh, very forcefully under the older President Bush, Bush 41, uh, um, George Herbert Walker Bush, and, and we joined a coalition at that time to basically to right that wrong and to eject the occupiers and the invading forces from the sovereign state of Kuwait. Now, you know, clearly that that isn't on the cards now and that's not being contemplated now. So, you know, what does that mean for those principles that underpin that order? And what does it mean if you're, if you're a country that's looking to take back territory that you historically claim as yours, as China does with respect to Taiwan, what are the lessons you're taking from that? And I think the lessons are not the ones that we would we would like to be providing them <laughs> if, you, if you care about stability in our region. Look, I mean, we always try and avoid mentioning anything to do with the 1930s. But what, what you've just said leads me to the point that, so yes, you know, we, we did have the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, but there was a reaction. When was the last time that it was a significant breach of, of sovereign territory of this nature. You move in and basically take over another country. And uh, there was no military response from uh, the free world. I mean, probably you go back to Czechoslovakia, don't you? I mean, am I over-dramatising this? We're in a very ugly place. Mm. I mean, certainly in my lifetime, I can't remember anything no, like that. No, I can't, I can't either. I mean, I think you're right. It's it's the German occupation of the Sudetenland and, and the partition of Poland and... So at some point we've got to make a stand, right? I mean, if if as many fear this is not the end, that the Baltic countries are in Russia's sights, that Poland is too, possibly even some of the other former Soviet bloc countries, at some point we've got to say, well, this far and no further, haven't we? You know, should should we be saying that with the Baltic states? Should we be saying 
I mean, do you think we can summon the will to do that? Well, look, I, I, I hope so. I mean, the, the difference here, and I don't think it's a difference of morality, it's a difference of legality, but is that the Baltics and Poland are NATO member states, which means they're protected by the mutual defence guarantee that's, um, that's, uh, that's, that lies at the heart of the NATO treaty. I think it's incredibly important that the, those, those countries, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, uh, are reinforced now, and I know the, the United States is doing that. They're funneling more military assistance there, but they also need to be hardened up. That would be obviously a, a, an even more flagrant violation of the international order. I mean, I, I don't, you know, what's been done in Ukraine is is deeply offensive and to be condemned absolutely. But these countries are in a slightly different position, the Baltics and Poland, because they are part of a part of a security treaty arrangement. So to Australia, it rather puts many of the things we've been debating in the last few months in perspective, doesn't it? You know, even perhaps COVID. This, this is many, many times much bigger than the stuff that's been on our agenda leading up to this election. Absolutely. What effect do you think, do you think it will have on the election debate, really? The agenda, not, let's not talk about the result. Let's talk about how the election is conducted, the things we talk about. Well, look, absolutely will elevate national security and the safety and security of Australia in a more uncertain world up up the political agenda, as I believe it should. I mean, you know, one of the first things I said in Parliament in my first speech, Nick, and one of my things I've always been campaigning on is that the world is becoming a less certain and more dangerous place for countries like Australia, and we need to spend more time and more energy and more resources in safeguarding that, that some of the, the sureties and the certainties that have um, been our comfortable bedfellows in the post-war era are becoming less certain and less sure, and we need to prepare for that. And there has been, you know, I think a degree of complacency in the Australian political debate about that and a degree of unwillingness to to grapple with the realities that um, the neighbourhood's becoming worse around us and we need to uh, do more to look, look out for our interests. And I think you know, that is a discussion I think we should always be having in Australia because I think... For too long, um, we've probably had it too good, uh, and we haven't had to have those difficult conversations and discussions, and 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 difficult decisions about resource allocation and national priorities and things like that. Um, this will undoubtedly, though, mean that we need to look at that. And I'd say as well, I mean, some people will say, "Oh, well, look, it's happening in Europe, and Ukraine is a long way from Australia." Well, look, this will have a significant disruption on global financial and energy markets, in which Australia. Um, you know, plays a huge, huge role, and we're not going to be shielded from those impacts. Whether it's prices of petrol at the Bowser, or the cost of gas, or disruption to supply chains, or a, um, you know, a significant downturn in equities markets and increase in risk premiums, Australia's, you know, part of that global economy. We're going to suffer from that. Um, it will imperil the global economic recovery from COVID, and Australia, as a trading nation, is, uh, you know, dependent upon and linked. Our own health is linked to the health of the global economy. Um, as well, and then of course there's the, you know, the, the geopolitical implications which we touched on before, which is what what precedent is this going to set for our own neighbourhood and the behaviour of major powers in our neighbourhood, and is it going to encourage them to be more bold and more aggressive in pushing their own territorial claims? I think the answer is yes. It's just a question of how far, but that's only going to mean a deterioration in our own strategic environment. Yeah, I mean, my conversation, I don't detect that there's too many people saying, oh, this is a long way from us, we shouldn't be concerned. You know, we are 
as we often say, a multicultural country. We have people here with relatives in Ukraine, surrounding countries, and I know that they're very concerned. Trade, as you say, I mean, we saw through COVID, didn't we? I mean, we don't have a lot of direct trade with Russia or not a significant amount. I think we did, or maybe we still do send some beef there, but you know, that's that's not the direct trade. We saw with COVID, though, that, that once the world supply chain gets disrupted in a, in a serious way, then we everybody is affected, right? So this is going to be have a real material effect on the economy, perhaps even on jobs. No, I think it will. I think absolutely it will. I mean, you're right, our direct relationship with Russia, I think it's about $1.2 billion in bilateral trade or so each year, which is about what we do with, you know, a country like Israel, for instance. It's not a, not a, not a big sum. But the knock-on effects and the second-order effects, I mean, if Europe does, as they're threatening to, sort of freeze Russia's energy sector out of access to global capital and modernisation, uh, if um, if they take action on Russian gas, exports of Russian gas, that's going to have a significant shock, a supply shock on the European economy. And the European economy is still, you know, about about a quarter of the world's economy. Uh, that's going to have a have a big impact, and it's also going to have a big impact on you know global energy markets, global energy supplies, the spot price of crude, the spot price of LNG. Uh, all these inputs that go into manufacturing and that drive the global economy. This is going to be. Uh, this is going to have a, a very ser- serious impact. And Australia is not, you know, we are an island geographically, but we're not economically. We're an integrated, trading, open global economy. Neither are we an island when it comes to the digital world, to digital security. And we know Russia has forms in conducting a disruption, digital disruption, in other countries, including in Australia. Uh, we probably don't know the half of it. How, how seriously do we, should we be taking that danger? Should we be preparing ourselves to wake up tomorrow and not have any internet or something else going Well, down? we should certainly be hardening up our cyber defences and putting our cyber defensive capabilities on heightened alert against the, the risk of these attacks. I mean, I don't think we're going to be a, a first-order target of a Russian cyber response, but we'd certainly be a second-order target as part of a you know, the global, uh, the global West. Uh, and I think we need to be prepared for that because they do have cyber capabilities. We have been a target of their cyber capabilities in the past. Uh, and, you know, we should expect that they will use, as, as they have done in Ukraine, full-spectrum uh, warfare, which includes, you know, things that are non-kinetic. David, the first-term uh, MP, you're not yet in the higher echelons of government and cabinet, although that surely can't be too far Away, but what are you hearing about the way the, the prime minister, foreign minister, are reacting, and 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 how they're treating this, and how big a uh, a crisis it is for them to deal Look, with? Look, I think it's it's very big. I mean, it's one of the one of the most significant security and strategic issues I think we've we've dealt with in recent years. And I know, I mean, it's certainly at the top of the prime minister's agenda. The foreign minister has been in Europe having discussions with European. Counterparts, um, undoubtedly, the Defence Minister Peter Dutton is involved. I'm, I'm certain that the National Security Committee of Cabinet is meeting on this on an almost daily basis. I'd expect, and perhaps even more frequently, about what is our own response from safeguarding Australians and Australian citizens and our embassy and diplomatic personnel, because we do have an embassy in in Ukraine, but we've also got Australian presence in in Moscow, a diplomatic presence there. To how do we respond to this? diplomatically at the at the UN and with our like-minded countries to our own moves such as imposing sanctions on Russian individuals and providing assistance to Ukraine through 
you know, non-lethal military assistance and humanitarian and medical assistance as well. So this is a multidimensional, you know, that we'll, we will need to have, as all countries will, a multidimensional response to this. And I expect it's, uh, it will be taking up, as it should, um, a very high amount of attention and time of our, of our government and our senior ministers. Well, David, I think one thing we're fortunate is that, is that we have great depth of experience and knowledge in the Australian Parliament on the coalition benches. You're part of that, your former uh, career as a diplomat, the knowledge you bring from that. We have people like Andrew Hasey who've actually served and, and fought for their country in war and, and um, very, very smart people like Senator James Patterson, many more. So uh, we're grateful for that and, and grateful for your contribution today. It's an evolving situation, as I say. Uh, we will return to you, I'm sure, later on in this crisis for another Thanks chat. so much, Nick. A pleasure to join you. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.